Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about innovations in the treatment of prostate cancer with Dr. Isaac Kim. Dr. Kim is professor and chair of urology at Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. Yes, um, um, I am a urologic oncologist um, with my clinical practice and research specifically focused around prostate cancer. Um, And um, to that end, my surgical expertise is robotic surgery or minimally invasive surgery. This is where surgery is performed through very small or multiple or single hole incisions. Uh, The advantage is the patients do recover faster and they do go home a lot quicker as a result of being able to get back to activity a lot quicker as a result of the surgery. So we're going to dive into a little bit more of the surgical innovations, but maybe we can take a step back and talk a little bit more about prostate cancer in general. Tell us a little bit more about prostate cancer. I mean, it seems to be pretty common, but these days not everybody uh, is getting screened. Um, There are different screening modalities and not everybody who even gets diagnosed with prostate cancer needs surgical management. So can you kind of lay the groundwork for us on um, what exactly is prostate cancer? How common is it? Who should get screened and how? Yes. Um, so again, um, that is actually a, a loaded question um, because as you've alluded to, um, there is not a, an agreement amongst all the experts in the field. So I'll just be able to just go over some of the general guidelines. But at the end, the most important thing for any man uh, with any sort of a prostate issues, it's really important to have an established relationship with the urologist um, to discuss these um, issues. And this is so called the, the concept of shared decision making, where the patients do have a say in whether they're going to undergo prostate cancer screening or not. Or not. But just to give you an overall, you know, like a, a 10,000 feet view of prostate cancer, it is the most common form of cancer in men um, besides skin um, lesions or skin tumors. Um, the estimated number of men who are going to be diagnosed with prostate cancer in this year, uh, in 2022, is a little less than 300,000 men. And, and of these men, um, or of the men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, approximately uh, 34,000 men are expected to die from the disease. So uh, just based on the statistics, although 30,000 men is not a very, it's not a small number. In fact, that's a very large number compared to the number of men who are diagnosed with the disease. The death rate is quite low. And, and herein lies the controversies or uh, debate around whether every man needs to be uh, needs to be screened for prostate cancer, um, and this is true. You know, most men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, will not die from the disease because our treatment is very good these days. As well as a lot of the uh, prostate cancers are um, indolent, or they will not hurt the patient if leave them alone. The controversy is in that you know we don't as doctors um, we don't have that. Um, 
the hindsight, right? When you have the benefit of hindsight, you can always go back and take a look and say whether this was good or not good for the patient. When a patient is is contemplating whether they're going to get a prostate cancer uh, workup done or not, right? They have to make the best decision based upon the current literature and what the recommendation is. And that guideline is going to be different based on the patient's age as well as the general health status. Um, so again, this is why it's important for the patients to have an engaged relationship um, with a, a urologist, a well-trained urologist. So, so let's dive in a little bit more into the age issue, because I mean, certainly your point of their general health status makes sense and is something that we apply across various cancer screening uh, modalities. So if, you know, you are um, in a uh, physical health condition such that finding a very small cancer at its earliest stages would be the least of your worries, you may not want to have be screened. Um, but age is a different issue. So we've found that, you know, for some cancers, now we are beginning to screen people earlier and earlier. Colorectal cancer is a, a classic example. For other cancers, we're stopping screening um, at particular ages. What's the story with prostate cancer? When should men start having a conversation with their doctor about whether or not they need to get screened? Okay. So um, this is where um, I will have a two answer for you. Uh, one is what our national guideline says. And then um, just based on my experience, what I prefer or when I have this shared decision-making conversation with my patients, what I suggest or, or, or you know, my inclination, my opinion on this. So I'll give you two answers again, the guideline and in my opinion. Uh, so you know, this all goes back to the clinical trials that were conducted uh, to assess whether prostate cancer screening makes sense or not for our patients, our men. Uh, and this is based on a, a really a critical blood test or, or um, called a prostate-specific antigen or PSA. It's a simple blood test. You get it run in a doctor's uh, office and then you get a number. And based upon that, we can risk stratify the patient, say what your risk of having a prostate cancer is. And in the past, uh, this number has traditionally been somewhere around three to four cutoff, and then patients are asked to undergo biopsies. Um, but again, this is based on many uh, laboratory findings. So um, in order to assess whether this screening method is effective or not, a, um, the, a, a large scale uh, clinical trials have been conducted, one in the United States and the other one in Europe. And what this study at the end uh, suggested was is that prostate cancer screening may not be all that effective. Um, but in the, at the end, um, it turns out that uh, the studies, uh, some of the studies, uh, the one that was conducted in the States were had a significant contamination. There's some questions about the, the scientific um, inc uh, validity or the, or the uh, rigorous in which um, the uh, study design was followed. So at the end, um, the, uh, the consensus was that prostate cancer screening still sh is, is, is pretty effective. And that's, again, that's what the, uh, the European data has shown. Nevertheless, you know, the issue with that is that the studies were, were conducted in men uh, age older than 55. So in medicine, as you, uh, uh, we have different levels of evidence and how strong uh, the level of evidence is. And the level that we aspire to is level one evidence. So currently the level one evidence suggests that prostate cancer screening is effective for men over the age of 55. 
That said, then, that doesn't preclude the fact that prostate cancer screening is, is, is still effective or not effective in younger than age 55 simply because they were not included in the clinical trials. All right. So I think therein lies the dilemma now. So the national guidelines right now still say for most part that prostate cancer screening should be in men over the age of 55 to age 65. Um, so again, based on, on these guidelines, um, that's what we use. Um, but also the question about them, what about the younger patients, right? What about the men who are at a higher risk, uh, such as you know, fathers, brothers having prostate cancer? as well as the, uh, the minorities, you know, the, uh, the black community does have a significant higher incidence of prostate cancer. So in general, uh, based on the data, um, what I say, what I see is, is a prostate-specific uh, antigen, PSA, is still a very, very effective tool. So I use it as the initial entry. Uh, I would like to establish a baseline level somewhere around age 40. And based on that level, then I think we can start guiding in terms of how intense that uh, follow-up or the screening process should be. So, for instance, if you're over, if you're at age 40 and you have a PSA level um, that is less than one, chances of you of that man having a uh, lethal prostate cancer over his lifetime is essentially zero. Uh, so, for that patient, then um, the, in terms of the uh, the screen intensity, you don't have to be as as intense as somebody at the age of 40 uh, with a PSA of three or four. Um, so this is why this shared decision-making becomes very important. Um, and again, um, I suggest that the baseline should be established somewhere around age 40 uh, for the reasons that um, uh, I think, that, again, that's a very good uh, guiding post in terms of how intense the future follow-up should be for that man. And so when you say intensity, do you mean that if somebody at the age of 40 has a PSA less than one, that they should never get another PSA and somebody who has a PSA of three or four should be screened at least annually or is it more frequent? Yes, so that's right. So um, again, these are all retrospective data. That said, you know, for someone whose PSA is less than what age 40, I recommend getting another checkup at age 50 and our 10-year follow-ups. Um, for someone whose PSA is between two and three, or I recommend a PSA check every five years, so age 40, 45, 50. Um, over the age of uh, PSA of three, I recommend annual checkups. Um, so again, these are um, just uh, based upon the, the retrospective that a large body retrospective that are not, they're not prospectively or they're not having validated in a rigorous clinical trial setting. Uh, but my take is, is that really the harm of using this approach is not significant. That was the you know, original concern with the mass screening of, of, of prostate cancer is, is that the aggressive intervention that would be lead, or a result of the screening may not be helping the patients. But I think by using this more of a graded approach and really working with the patients, I think that concern is, is mitigated or it's, it's a lot less. Uh, so I do think, again, uh, uh, tailoring the, the follow-up resume based upon the patient's age as well as the uh, baseline levels or the last or previous levels, I think it's a good approach to do so. And, and one other question. So in terms of screening, what role does digital rectal exam play? I mean, are we good with a PSA alone or, or do we still need to have rectal exams, which many men might not really prefer? 
<laughs> I mean, there's a, there's another very uh, important critical question uh, that you're raising, and again, that is a question that uh, I faced not only from my you know, our, our medical students that we teach here, uh, but also from our colleagues across in our in our field. I say this at the end, though. Um, or in terms of statistics, you know, how many prostate cancer can be picked up uh, by a rectal exam uh, that could not be picked up by PSA? Uh, that number is quite low. Um, it's going to have to be in the single digits. Um, so um, because of that, again, the question is, is that for those patients whose PSA or whose prostate cancer is picked up by a digital rectal exam, um, that if you left them alone, eventually the PSA would have declared itself. So what is really the utility of the rectal exam is the question at hand there. Um, and, and again, we don't know the answer uh, 100% for sure, uh, but really at the end, what I assure men is, is it really is not a, a difficult or painful exam. It's just that it's, it deals with the private parts. You know, it has, you know, that... Um, uh, the private issues, um, so patients are reluctant, especially men are reluctant to undergo such an exam. But it's not a, a anything that has a, a long-term um, complications or any sort of long-term um, consequences of the exam. It's, it's a simple uh, physical exam. I mean, you know, uh, my wife has to go into a gynecologist and has to get her annual pelvic exam. In that sense, it's not all that different here in terms of complexity. Um, in fact, in a pelvic exam would be even more compl complex. Um, so it's not a a difficult exam to conduct. Um, so I think once you can overcome that psychological component, a patient has been very good at it. So at the end, I do stress that uh, rectal exam still is an important part of uh, monitoring patients uh, or screening patients uh, who are potentially at risk for prostate cancer. Well, we're going to pick up the conversation about prostate cancer and what happens after screening and what happens, who needs a biopsy and who gets treated and how, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about prostate cancer treatment with my guest, Dr. Isaac Kim. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where you can view videos from their survivorship team by searching for the Smilo Survivorship Playlist on YouTube. Breast cancer is one of the most common cancers in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,500 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But there is hope thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and the development of novel therapies to fight breast cancer. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with the disease. With screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle, breast cancer can be defeated. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is also transforming breast cancer screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. I'm Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Isaac Kim. We're talking about prostate cancer treatment, and right before the break, we were learning that prostate cancer is very common, but oftentimes is pretty indolent. We went over who needs a, a digital rectal exam and who needs a PSA, 
But my next question for you, Dr. Kim, is this. At what point do you move on to a biopsy? I mean, at what point is a PSA number or a digital rectal examination finding so concerning that it's time to start looking for a cancer? Yes. Uh, so again, that is a question or the answer to that is not a simple, straightforward answer. Uh, it really depends on the uh, patient's age uh, um, as well as um, his general uh, health status. That said, in general, the standard cutoff for PSA, uh, which will trigger a prostate biopsy, which I'd recommend on prostate biopsy, is generally around PSA 4.0. Um, um, for patients who are younger than age 50, uh, PSA of 3.0, uh, uh, I will start monitoring those patients very intensely. Uh, and if there's any sign of their PSAs rising, for those of them, I would actually uh, trigger the biopsy or re rec uh, recommend a biopsy at a much earlier point. Um, on the other hand, if the man is older than age 65, 70, then you can go up on the PSA to over six, uh, on six and a half or so. The other um, sign that would trigger a prostate biopsy in my mind is an abnormal digital rectal exam. Uh, it comes to mind a patient that I saw a couple of months ago. I actually was seen by a primary uh, doctor uh, just monitoring his PSA, uh, but again, uh, this patient's PSA remained low, but um, he started having difficulty with urination. That's why he's referred into my clinic. And on a rectal exam, was was pretty um, profound what he had. So for this patient, clearly not having a rectal exam was an issue. Um, so um, I do recommend again annual rectal exam for patients at risk. And, and one more thing, I think more nuanced approaches is that there's something called a PSA velocity. Um, so over the, the dynamics or how PSA changes over year over year is another parameter that the uh, the doctor should pay attention to. But that again, that is more of a nuanced approach. The next question, of course, is, you know, PSA is a blood test. So the PSA rising or being beyond a certain level tells you that something's going on with your prostate, but it doesn't necessarily tell you where. Right. Um, I think that is probably the one of the areas in which uh, the prostate cancer field has made a huge progress over the last uh, decade or so. It's so-called the target of biopsies. Uh, and really uh, what this um, uh, technique involves is the imaging of the prostate using the MRI. Um, and uh, based on the MRI findings, um, we'll often find lesions. Um, that are not normal, and the radiologist, using his or her expertise, um, will grade the uh, the appearance of the or how abnormal that particular lesion is uh, from a group one to a group five. Um, and these grouping area um, categories does tell a lot about the potential risk of the patient actually having a, a clinically significant prostate cancer. And here, what I mean by clinically significant is, is that if you leave this alone, this prostate cancer is probably likely going to be progressing and actually ultimately compromising the survival or the quality of life of the patient. Um, so in general, uh, based on the MRI findings, if the category is three or higher uh, is when the uh, prostate biopsy is recommended. What the more recent studies have shown is a little more sobering in a sense that it turns out that the MRI is not 100% accurate in predicting, as you, as you are fully aware also. Is this anything that we do, all this imaging still have some sort of a, a technical um, engineering type of limitations there. So it's, it's apparent, it's, this is true also for prostate cancer, that the MRI is not able to pick up 
all the lesions. So what the current recommendation for, from most urologic oncologists that we do with the so-called the systematic biopsies, we actually divide up the prostate into different grids uh, and take the systematic biopsies. In addition to that, these targeted biopsies uh, that you know, based on what the MRI uh, shows is carried out. That brings up the next issue, which is what is quote, clinically significant enough, unquote, um, to actually warrant some form of treatment. Many men who get diagnosed with prostate cancer will embark upon a course of watchful waiting or um, kind of close observation uh, rather than having any kind of active treatment in terms of surgery or other modalities to treat their cancer. How do you make that determination? So that is also, again, it depends on, there's two critical criteria that you have to assess. One is the disease itself. And second is a patient's overall conditions. So I'll just cover the second part first. Basically, even if the patient has an aggressive prostate cancer, uh, if the patient's, let's say, 80 years old, probably it is unlikely that prostate cancer is going to hurt that patient. So more often than not, even if the prostate cancer is aggressive in an 80-year-old man, I would recommend that probably an observation or surveillance is probably the better route to go. Um, so again, it really depends on the age of the patient. That said, if you're really looking at prostate cancer biology itself, uh, we divide prostate cancer into three different categories, the low risk, the intermediate risk, and the high risk. So for men with high risk, there's no debate about whether these patients need interventions. Also with patients who have a low-risk disease, um, surveillance, uh, there's no debate there. So it's really the debate is in the intermediate category and, you know, who would undergo a surveillance or not. Um, and right now, there's a lot of scientific studies going on to address this question. Current standard right now is to use a lot of genomic testing. Uh, so we have um, a couple of um, uh, platforms out there that's been approved by the FDA that would like to use to assess the risk of patients having a, a, a potentially uh, the cancers uh, pr progressing or spreading to other part of, other part of the body in the future. Uh, but again, uh, these uh, sophisticated testing again should all be interpreted with an expert's um, experience and expert's uh, perspective. So this should be all done in, in consultation with the urologist. And so for those patients who either are uh, uh, advised to pursue more aggressive treatment or choose to do that, what does that look like? I mean, is surgery the mainstay of therapy? Is there a role for neoadjuvant therapy? So people getting chemotherapy before surgery, how does that work? Right. So uh, I'll take your question in, in, in two different segments here. One is, you know, just giving an overall perspective on treatment, what the available treatments for prostate cancer, and then talk about this neoadjuvant or having sort of chemotherapy um, as part of the regimen really is in the high risk and advanced disease. Uh, so in patients, you know, who are diagnosed with prostate cancer, in terms of the decision-making for potential options, there are really three broad categories. Um, one is leaving this alone, um, surveillance. Um, by the way, surveillance does not mean that you actually do not monitor disease. The intent of the surveillance is to continue to monitor the disease. And when that ratio between the risk of intervention versus the benefit of intervention flips, in the patient's favor is when you're gonna actually intervene. So in surveillance context, 
the patient is not just uh, being ignored, but he, he still uh, has to pursue and has to be monitored continuously. That said, then, with the surveillance being one option, the second option is radiation, um, and third option is, is in surgery. If you look at the, the overall landscape of treatments of being deployed or being utilized um, in, in the United States these days, surgery is uh, done in about 40% of men diagnosed with prostate cancer. Radiation is about 30 35%, and surveillance about 25 to 30%. So it's a reasonable even split uh, in terms of the treatments that are being, being used. Uh, now then to the point um, about uh, the potential for a new adjuvant or any sort of combination therapy. Uh, in Prostate cancer uh, is unique or is unique or different from other cancers that is exquisitely sensitive to hormones or male testosterones. For this reason, hormonal therapy or androgen deprivation therapy, ADT, has been contemplated, has been assessed in many trials to see if that can be used in combination with any of these as surgery or radiation. What the studies have demonstrated is, is that it, in surgical patients, um, it doesn't make a huge difference. Um, although, again, uh, where I work right now, um, uh, as an investigator really interested in this disease space, I am still exploring the use of a, a more recent agents in the disease space and how that would help or potentially help patients with uh, advanced disease including metastatic prostate cancer. But where the new adjuvant or using hormonal therapy before intervention has really shown effectiveness is with radiation. Uh, the precise mechanism is not quite clear yet, um, but uh, multiple studies have suggested that uh, the hormonal therapy itself um, can cause cells to die and potentially immune response can be revved up. Um, the other thing is that it can potentially uh, fragment DNAs also. Uh, so that then can augment uh, the effect of the radiation. So in general, um, in patients who are contemplating radiation, that hormonal therapy should be a significant part of the treatment armamentarium um, as, again, the patient's concerned radiation. So then the, the next question, of course, is, um, what factors will prompt somebody to opt for surgery and can you talk a little bit about some of the innovations in surgery? At the top of the show, you mentioned that you were very interested in robotic surgery. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so, so in general, if you look at the, uh, the data uh, and who would benefit the most uh, from a surgical intervention, these are patients who are relatively younger, um, who are in generally good health, who have long life expectancy. In my practice, I strongly recommend surgery to men with more than 15 years of life expectancy. Um, again, uh, you have to take a look at, uh, assess the patient's general health status and, and calculate uh, the, the potential of survival um, for that uh, patient. Um, so it has to be again done in conjunction with, in consultation with the patient. But in general, for healthier patients, I do think that they're gonna benefit a lot better from surgery because in, in this is an operation they can go in and take the prostate out uh, and then patient recovers and can go on to resume his normal life with really not much uh, risk going or or the the no uh, significant complications from the operation long term provided that in the near term he has recovered all his functions and that is again that's a, a statement that i am putting out the lotus statement that i'm putting out there in that 
the recovery after operation is where a lot of men fear uh, because the prostate sits right outside or just external distal to the bladder and that is where a lot of the important male functions including erectile function the nerves responsible to erectile function runs through um, so um, in this patients again uh, the uh, the uh, chance to have the uh, the surgery um, is again has to depend on the experience of the oper operator or the surgeon where I come in is is that I do the robotic surgery and really in my mind this has really uh, mitigated or addressed a lot of these potential concerns in terms of the complication for the patient and again that's another area where over the last 10 years we have made a significant and a huge progress in terms of technology and engineering and um, as we move forward, um, the paradigm is shifting where we used to make a big incision and the smaller incisions. And the more recent technology is so-called the single port prostatectomy technology where now we're after this operation, patients are able to go home on the same day, essentially. Dr. Isaac Kim is professor and chair of urology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.